Hey friends, Ashton Gustafson here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. I am very excited today. A man uh, whose work I've studied for some time now uh, and probably to so many of our uh, people here that join in at the community at Good, True, and Beautiful, uh, his work uh, has crossed your path time and time again. And uh, I'm grateful just to spend some time with him today. Super grateful that his folks reached out uh, to chat a little bit about a new book that he's got uh, coming our way. But we have uh, Andy Crouch joining us today, and I am super grateful to have this time with him. Uh, and with that being said, I want to bring him on and introduce him. So, Andy, welcome to Good, True, and Beautiful. Thank you, Ashton. So happy to get to talk. Yeah, man. So um, maybe some of our folks haven't met you, crossed paths with you, read your books, uh, read your writing. Very, very likely. You, you know, well, you know, I did, not here, not here. Uh, but when you introduce yourself and, and your work in the world, where do you begin? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, you know, I used to have a really clear answer to this. I would say I was a journalist <laughs> and I had a whole way of explaining what journalists do. We make complicated things clear and this kind of stuff. And I'm not a journalist anymore, really. Um, but so now I work with my day job is with entrepreneurs. I, mm. I spend a lot of time with people who are starting new things, businesses and nonprofits uh, with this organization called Praxis. Uh, we we want to create a great ecosystem for what we call redemptive entrepreneurship. And I'm partner for theology and culture there. Um, and then uh, every once in a while, I, I uh, make a mistake and feel like I have to write a book. And so that's the other thing I do is write books when I have forgotten how hard it is to write books. So those are my main yeah, activities, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, in terms of what I put into the world. On the other hand, I'm also the husband to Catherine yeah. and father of two young adult kids as well so right on right on so um i i think you know one of your great gifts that you've given in your writings and your work in the world is um remembering our humanity you know coming coming back hmm. to uh what wow. it means to be human and how do we pen how do we penetrate these illusions in the world that we have and, and, and get down to that, which is actually true and genuine and real. Um, this latest book, the life we are, uh, this latest book, the life we are looking for, um, why this book and why now? Hmm. Well, why now is fairly easy. Uh, it's because I finally got it finished. <laughs> So <laughs> books, uh, it's hard for at least my books to be very timely, at least intentionally, because it takes me a while to write them. Um, so I've been working on this for three or four years. And for about 10 years, it's the culmination of about 10 years of thinking for me about a, a set of issues that I have become pretty convinced are, are of existential importance for persons, um, in the world right now. And the, the one that was clearest earliest to me was technology. So, you know, really technology has made the world that we know and live and try to be human within. Um, and it's such a new thing. I mean, I really would date what we would call the technological world to roughly a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. My great grandparents really did not they lived with tools, they lived with industry even, but they didn't live with what we call technology. So it's such a new thing. Um, so that was one side of it. And then as I tried to think through what was really at stake, um, I came to believe that the other thing that's kind of at stake, and it's this sort of deep, mysterious word, 
is personhood, mm-hmm. which is kind of related to what you said. Like, you know, what what is it to be human? Um, but more specifically, what is it to be a person? And I've come to believe these two topics are really interwoven because I think the dream behind technology at its most damaging is uh, is actually a, the dream of an impersonal world or the, uh, the kind mm. of imagination that there's a way to get power and get things done in the world without having to be a person or rely on persons. So those were the two ideas that kind of started colliding uh, for me a, f- a few years ago. And I thought, well, I think this is important enough to kill some trees. <laughs> So wow. uh, that's what I've been working on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's chat through. I, I think I want to begin at that kind of personhood uh, yeah. a- a- aspect because you you bring delight. Which reading it, you're like, well, of course. I, I can't believe I haven't had these these thoughts before. Like, but the difference between people and persons, ah. right? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And and I loved like you. You had a contemplative. You had a contemplative walk at Chicago O'Hare one night uh, where you were, you know, just walking by each person, giving them, you know, the divine uh, image bearing name of Imago Day, image of the yeah. divine. And so I, let's start there because I think that yeah. is important yeah. to hear sure. about your journey on at our most genuine authentic ontological metaphysical place uh who or what are we right like what's what's going on here indeed well let's see so let's try i can kind of hit a couple ideas here that you've mentioned let's actually start with the the ontological that is the the question of being and i actually think personhood is a really interesting paradoxical thing because on the one hand it's completely fundamental and uh inalienable that is you just are a person it, no one can take that away from you um as, from the moment you were born or perhaps conceived in the womb it's hard i don't know let's <laughs> come back to that question but but as as you began you began as a person and you will end your life as a person and nothing in between will take that away and at the same time, personhood is something that can be violated, hmm. can be denied, and can be frustrated. So even though it can't be taken away, it can be damaged. And we all have felt this because every one of us has been in a, a dehumanizing or depersonalizing environment at some point in our lives. And have felt what it feels like to not be treated as a person. And of course, in the course of history, many, many people actually probably never felt ever what it was to be like to be treated as a person right so and then the other the flip side of this so a person who could be damaged but then personhood also mysteriously even though it's fundamental and can't be taken away it also can be developed it's it's um we start out as a baby uh, we're, we're all born as human infants and we are fully persons the moment we're born and yet there's all this growth ahead of us mm-hmm. that is so much to do with what it is to be a person like who am i who are these other people around me what does it mean to be in relationship with these people maybe ultimately who 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 am i ultimately accountable to maybe there's a a god or a divine reality in the world so personhood you know first of all is this it's the it's the fundamental drama of our lives i think to discover who we are um that maybe leads to another point which is it is person is an intrinsically relational word it it is 
built on relationship. Even though you're a person, no matter who you're related to, you would never have found out you were a person without some persons relating to you. Mm. <laughs> and this is where we get to, you mentioned this, this interesting distinction in, in sort of conventional English, ordinary English between people and persons. Because yeah. if I say the, the room was full of people, you immediately know what I mean. And part of what I mean, even though we not, are usually not thinking this uh, at the surface level, part of what I mean is so many people that I didn't really know all of them. Like it's just a crowd, right? Yep. But if I said to you, the room was full of persons, that's, it's less common. We would not normally say that. But if we said that, it would draw your attention to the, at least the possibility that I could know those persons. Mm -hmm. Because personhood is about being known, mm -hmm. being recognized mm -hmm. and being known. And this is why we had to cut this from the book. It was very frustrating. I was like, hey, this is a good paragraph. <laughs> My editor was like, yeah, but it's a distraction. So uh, it, here's a really interesting thing. Uh, for those of us who are Trinitarian Christians, yep. how do we speak of the Trinity? It's right. a big deal, right? I was exactly and, where I was going with this. That paragraph right. needs to be in there. <laughs> oh my gosh. So can we say... There are three people yeah. in the Trinity. God and three no. people, blessed Trinity. That isn't one and three. Not what we're, yeah. No, yeah. we say three persons yeah. because it's not people. God is not three people in even three people in one. God's three persons in mm. one because mm. only the word person holds together a kind of in individuality, mm -hmm. irreducibility, and relationship in a word. Mm -hmm. People kind of lumps them together mm -hmm. too much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and individual, by the way, we would also not say there are three individuals in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's also kind of grammatically incorrect from a, a, a theological point of view. Because only, the only word you can properly use, and part of why we use the word persons this way is the whole history of Christian reflection on what we could say about the three members of the Trinity. The only word you can use is persons. Mm -hmm. So, so a lot of what this book is about is how do we put this mystery back at the center of our lives and our dreams for our lives? And that is where, uh, you know, this experience I had in O'Hare where I had a couple of hours to kill. <laughs> and I was like, what can I do with a couple of hours behind security in Chicago airport on a winter night? And I decided to walk the whole length of the airport, every terminal. So it ends up being several miles of walking and just try to pay attention to every person I passed. And just um, for a brief moment, say to myself the words image bearer as I watched each person go by. And uh, because that is the sort of maybe the most beautiful way to name mm -hmm. Uh, the persons we mm -hmm. encounter mm -hmm. every person I encounter. Mm -hmm. It's not just a person in a kind of a human sense, but the Christian belief would be the biblical Hebrew belief is, is a bearer of the divine image. Mm -hmm. And it's really something to walk through an airport and see all these people in all these different <laughs> stages of life, ages, so many different backgrounds, so many different stories you can kind of guess behind their appearance um, so much you don't know about them. But one thing you know is every single one is an image pair. Cut from the cloth of the divine. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, and, I, yeah. and I, it, this was so helpful to me. Um, you know, I'm in the business world. My, you know, the, the mm. thing that I do for a living is not here. This is my playland. This is my sandbox. Yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is where there's so. no, no rules. Um, <laughs> but there's the risk, uh, and this was huge, there's the risk of um, an interaction with someone and having the idea of people 
the risk of exploiting yes. Yes. versus the idea of person. Uh, yes. And you then can contemplate. Actually, you can experience their essence, if you will. Yes. Uh, yes. And so hold my hand on this because that was a, <laughs> that was a massive, uh, beautiful place for me. And I'm going to teach within my office of what happens in the nitty gritty of life where there's difference uh, and there's opinion. Yeah. And oh, by the way, yeah, yeah. when you talk about ego slides in the back door, uh, but, yes. but really yes. grounding yes. ourselves in the person because that yes. can be contemplated and, yeah. and we can grant them that subject to subject relationship versus a subject object relationship. Maybe where people enter the mix. Um, exactly. So exactly. Exactly. hold my hand on that. Oh man, <laughs> I'm reaching out through the screen to hold your hand, Ashton. <laughs> it's gonna be okay. We're gonna we're gonna this make out. it. Yeah, we're uh, gonna make it. <laughs> um, totally. Well, so you know, I quote um, just truly one of the most transformative sentences I've ever heard spoken, which I heard from a teacher of the spiritual life named Leanne Payne, and she got it from someone else, I believe. But uh, but she said, in my hearing, um, we either contemplate or we exploit. Mm. <laughs> we either contemplate or we exploit. And I think that what's behind that is if I do not begin my interaction with you just attending to you, ju just beholding you for mm -hmm. who you are, mm -hmm. if I don't, and that's essentially what contemplation is, to just behold without making use of, right? Yep. I will inevitably jump to the question of what good are you for me, hmm. <laughs> which is the fundamental question of exploitation. How can I use you for my ends? And this is true even in relatively mutually beneficial environments like a commercial transaction, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, maybe both of us will walk away feeling like we got what we paid for, but there is still a way to skip the contemplation and go straight to mm. what good are you or what, what are we transacting here? What are we getting done? And while it's sometimes relatively benign, I don't think it's ever truly benign because I really have to begin my encounter with you if it's going to be good just by contemplating you. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and there are so many things in life that shortcut that or mm -hmm. that, um, that cause us to skip that step. And so you mentioned some of them, conflict. So it's so easy when I approach you and realize we're going to be in a conflict. Like how, how, how dare I, in a way, like how dare I risk just contemplating when I know we're not on the same side? Yep. Does that make sense? Yep. Like, no, no, I gotta, like, I've got to defend or I've got to undermine or I've got to establish or justify or, you know, all these things we feel like we need to do in a conflict. And yet actually in the midst of conflict, maybe the most important thing hmm. is first to, to, behold mm -hmm. and contemplate mm -hmm. um but also just hurry can do it yeah. like i'm just in a rush like let's get this transaction done you know um and part of the sickness of our world and you know human beings none of our illnesses are new um but i do think technology and and we might want to talk a little bit about the the thing behind technology which i call in the book magic and mammon these kind of ancient forces that we don't think about very much um it's it's putting us in more and more places where we almost have no opportunity to contemplate hmm. so mm -hmm. when all of my commercial transactions are 
impersonal when they're mediated through a screen and I just hit the button on DoorDash and the driver runs up to the door and drops off the, the bag with dinner and I've already put a tip into the app. So, you know, I feel good about that. Like they're, they're being compensated and, and let's just say they're being compensated fairly. So there's nothing like economically exploited, but I've lost that moment of even seeing the face, hmm. let alone recognizing the face, let alone knowing the name, let, right. And, but a lot of transactions happen at even more arm's length than DoorDash. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if you have DoorDash in Waco. Oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's made yeah. it here. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> Uh, I can never keep track of which cities have which uh, new technological service to yeah. disintermediate and uh, and depersonalize. So, you know, it's just we we are, have become so accustomed to living in a world where people don't expect to be seen. Mm. And uh, and of course, there's something maybe even kind of uh, comfortable about that for mm-hmm. both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it's safer to just stay behind my screen. But I don't think it's better. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just wrote these notes thinking about that on, on like how can you in real time navigate contemplation versus exploitation. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, um, am I using math or am I stepping into the mystery, right? Am, oh, I, wow. am, yes. I, am I adding up? Does this need to move up and to the right? Am I playing chess, right? Like what is, am I, yes. am I playing the numbers game of, which is always scarcity based, right? Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Or yes. am I in the realm of abundance, which is always ridiculously mysterious. Uh, right. And you as wow. the, per- and, and you as the person, mysterious, cut from the cloth yeah. of the divine. There's, and that's hard to do in real time, but I, I feel like that's yes. a helpful maybe something to hold on no, to it's beautiful. as beautiful. we in, in real time. Uh, and maybe we're just jumping with letters that or words that start with them of magic and mammon and mystery and math, you know, maybe we can <laughs> just roll with it. But, um, you know, I think there's, I think there's something to that, you know, no, completely, time. completely. And, and here's where I think the story of technology has gone wrong is technology is based on math. I mean, so I happen to be married to a physicist, uh, you know, so an experimental physicist. So Catherine is a scientist, not so much a technologist, but she, she studies the foundational realities of the world that turn out to be amazingly, powerfully, beautifully expressible in mathematical form. And it really was the application of mathematics to the natural world um, through things like Maxwell's equations and Newton's laws and so forth that we started to get kind of a handle on really what we were dealing with in Mm -hmm. the world, right? And all of that, I would say, is very good. Uh, and a beautiful part of being human um, and a beautiful part of being modern in a way. Like we, we grasp some things about the world that turn out to be intensely elegant and surprisingly like consonant with the idea of a creator for that matter um, in a way that pagan people just didn't, hadn't figured all that out um, or pre-modern people hadn't figured out. Uh, the, the problem is <laughs> when you apply math to domains where math is not the right language or more precisely where you apply the dream of control that a mathematical unpacking of physical reality allows. Because mm. once we really know the laws or the, the equations, we then can build systems that operate with high levels of reliability, like extraordinarily high. Mm-hmm. So when I get on an air, even an airplane with super complicated system, 
but it's comp it's only complicated it's not complex there's a difference between complicated and yep. complex yep. complicated things you just have to learn a lot of math and then you can you can control them and in fact we can control our commercial aircraft such that i i never rationally worry yep. when i go up in the air and come down that i won't come down in a controlled fashion right so math works in that domain but human beings and persons are not complicated they're complex mm which means math doesn't actually work and they can't be controlled. <laughs> and when I even just open up this, we're doing this through a Zoom browser or a Zoom window here to talk with you, a fellow person who we haven't met before. If I dream of controlling this conversation, like for one thing, it's not going to happen. Like, and nor can you control it, even though you're the host. Like that control is not something we can get yep. in it. Certainly not in a healthy way, um, but that will so rob me uh, if I, if that's what I'm after. That so robs me of the actual thing, mm -hmm. which is the mystery. That's right. Who is this person I'm with, and who am I, and what will I find out about myself as I encounter this other person? And the level of vulnerability in that, unpredictability in that, inability to predict or project like we just we can't predict it. We don't, in fact, fully know what that other person is going to see in us and say back to us. And if we're trying to control it, we'll miss the whole gift of the thing. Mm. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's, you're so right to sort of zero in on, on the, the dream of being able to do to do math for everything. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> is think the technological dream. That, that's right. That's the technological. Yeah. Dream. That there is a world of form that involves jet engines and, and planes taking off and landing where you right. better make sure the Excel spreadsheet is correct. Yes, um, yes, completely, completely. And, and then, but at the soul level, right. um, beauty doesn't fit into the Excel spreadsheet. Uh, exactly. mystery, you know, talk, talk mystery, right, with the pilot. That's not a good thing. Um, and, and oh, you know, maybe that's, what you're, maybe that's what you're inviting us to in this first half of the book of we've lost our way is, yeah. is an invitation back to the mystery. Right. Well, but yeah, yes, completely. And, but I tell you where there is mystery, <laughs> not the pilot is uh, facing forward, looking through the cockpit, looking at the instruments, operating the machine, but the flight attendants are facing the other direction generally. And they're looking at this tube full of persons. Per right? Yes. Yes. 250 <laughs> persons. Uh. <laughs> and think about, and I actually think part of what makes airplanes, you know, and it's gotten, it's always been bad. It's worse now. I don't know how much you've been on planes mm -hmm. recently. I had mm -hmm. a, I, I used to travel 120 nights a year, Lord have mercy, um, because of my work and speaking and the things I do. And then I had this year, uh, in 2020, of a solid year where I never got on a plane. <laughs> and then when I started doing it again in the last 12 months or so, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this has always been so bad, but it's worse. Mm -hmm. It's definitely worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's gotten worse in all kinds of ways. But fundamentally, what makes it not good for us is you are cramming these like packets of mystery into this <laughs> mechanical thing to get the dream of instantaneous transportation from yeah. one very distant place to another. And you're 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 asking us. You're giving us the superpower of flight. Like, you know, I mean, I'd rather fly like Superman, just sort of soar through the air and I guess never get cold and 
I guess wind chill isn't an issue for Superman. Um, but, you know, but the only way to actually get that superpower is to be diminished as a person. And mm. you put all these persons in proximity to each other in this highly mechanical control oriented engineered environment. And it's like, it's, it's a really bad place to be a person and all kinds of things break out. Conflict breaks out and, you know, uh, strife and, and barely suppressed rage. Yep. <laughs> and you just feel it on, on an airplane. Because it's not an environment. It's an environment that's very good at doing the technological thing, but it's not good at doing the human thing. Yeah. And I think our whole world is way more like that than we sometimes realize. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, so the, this, uh, I guess, to put a ribbon on kind of the first part, a dialogue that you're having in the book of, of we've lost our way. You know, one of the things you mentioned on the tech technology side of things is that it accelerates the pattern of emptiness and isolation. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, this is this is the work of your writing. It's very like, oh, oh my gosh, there's the language I've been looking for. I've been feeling that in my bones, but I needed someone to put some words over that so I could give it some, some texture and name that thing. Um, I guess to wrap up the conversation of, of, of we've lost our way, is, yeah. is it, is it, I don't think it's just let's point our finger at technology and say technology, no, thank you, you've been bad. I, may, maybe it is, maybe it is this dance between that and just that awakening to who we are, who our neighbor is, the person that they are, uh, and and maybe just shifting our eyes from seeing people to seeing persons. Is is that mm. is that where you're mm. leading us in, in reading this mm. part of the book? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, yes, and I would say, and this kind of maybe gets into the second part of the book, I think it's really important that we redesign, and mm. I think we can. So it's not just a matter, so I'm, I'm not anti-technology. I use, I mean, I probably use every major device that's been created. I don't know, there's probably a few that I have, have sworn off or found didn't really help. But, you know, I have no problem with uh, technology in its proper place. Um, so it's not just saying, oh, something went wrong. It's actually saying the design principles that have been deployed for roughly the last hundred years, based on what we learned of the world through science, were based on a false imagination. So really what it is true that that at the most fundamental level, we just need to be constantly practicing. How do I encounter other persons? And how do I encounter the whole world? Not yeah. just persons, the, yeah. the created world, the yeah. natural world, with contemplation first, um, rather than with exploitation first. But but there's a, a, a bit of a sharper point here, which is um, we as individuals, as households, as communities, and ultimately as a society need to change our minds about what we want the technologists to build. Because mm. they're building things for us based on what they think we want and what we think we want. And it's not working. It's really bad for people. So, so we need a new framework for how we design and evaluate and adopt technology. Uh, because we're going to continue to make use of what we know about the world. And yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing. But we need a new paradigm. So that's where the second half of the book is not just about critique, but about this different way that actually is right there available to us if we just would decide this is the thing we want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reimagining, redesigning. You call these redemptive yep. moves. Um, yes. let, let's, let's get into that a bit. Um, 
Let's start start with like this idea of influence being greater than impact. Um, <laughs> I, I I loved that of uh, how many um, how many crowds have I sat in, unfortunately, where uh, an alpha male stood at the front of the room and told me to impact right yes. the the the, the, yes. the world to. Uh, to build the muscle, go against the grain, scale it, take the mountain, burn the boats, you know, all these uh, different things that we've heard. Talk talk to me about how not only the word impact, how it's the the, the etymology of it, right? I mean, used to be this. First of all, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, it used to be this dental dental word, and now it's like this thing we're supposed to do. Like, talk to me about that. Sorry, your wisdom tooth is impacted. Yes. That's right. So, first of all, never meant to be a verb, in my opinion. Uh, Very bad verb. Uh, Okay, now, but very bad verb. But, But the real core thing is that impact, which is, it, this is the preoccupation of a technological world. And, uh, and I'll try to explain why in a couple sentences here. So impact is force over time. It, so the higher, higher the force and the smaller the time, amount of time, the mm. shorter the time, that's when you get impact, right? So it's not a slow motion thing. The whole point of impact is it happens really fast with very high levels of, of force mm. applied to a, also often a very small area. So it's a terrible metaphor for <laughs> for what we actually want in the world because mm-hmm. mo- the the it, when you concentrate force over a small amount of time over a small area what you get is damage damage can you repeat that, that please and that needs to hit me one more time <laughs> when when you concentrate force over a too short an amount of time over too small an area the main result is damage. Impacts lead to damage. They lead to craters. <laughs> they lead to wounds. They they oh. lead to you know they they lead to uh, unravel the uh, disorder, un, uh, hmm. sort of entropic, mm-hmm. the increase of entropy, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's so interesting. Jesus, you know, who is my reference point for the ultimate re- uh, revelation of what it is to be a person never used language well he he did talk about impact but it was it was the bad news he had to deliver that there was going to be this impactful event in jewish history in roughly ad 70 in which the romans would come and impact jerusalem and and very quickly with a huge amount of force over a very small amount of time not a single building is left uh not a single stone is left on another Mm. that's impact and you can do impact if you have a military you can do impact if you have superior force and you can do impact if you have technology. Also, if you have money, by the way, like you can con- in our world, if you have a billion dollars, like imagine how much things you can get to happen relatively quickly in a constrained environment, mm-hmm. huge amounts. But if you are trying to change the world for the better, you need some, you need a totally different set of metaphors. <laughs> but part of the problem is it's very, we're, we're very preoccupied with changing the world. The problem is it's, it's very easy to change the world. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> it's just not easy to change the world for the better, right? Yep. So <laughs> I can tell you all kinds of ways to change the world, but most of them change the world for the worse. And the question is, how do you change it for the better? And then you need organic metaphors, agricultural metaphors. Um, and, you know, in the book I talk about, instead of impact, we really need to be thinking more about influence, yep. which was this ancient idea, which we don't believe this in the, in the way the ancients did, but the, the ancient idea was that the, the sun and uh, the star, not so much the sun, the stars and the moon 
at a great distance with very, in very subtle ways shaped the mm. course of human events. And when you look at beneficial things in history, there are turning points and there are moments, especially in retrospect, that are remembered as, wow, a lot changed. You know, whether it's the March on Washington in 1963, was it, uh, for civil rights or the or crossing the bridge at Selma, Alabama. There, there are moments. But when you actually start to look at where that change came from, you find this deep, long, patient preparation and then deep, long, patient working out of that mm -hmm. moment rather than impact. So we need to really reframe where we think the change we want is going to come from. It's not going to come from concentration of force, small space over time, short amount of time. It's going to come from this patient, persistent, commitment to growth <laughs> that is much more like planting a seed yeah and and then caring for that seed as it grows and part of what i try to do in this in the book of course is actually tell a story of how that has happened uh that is right in the midst of the roman empire that was fully capable of destroying a city in a matter of a, a week, few weeks or months and i so wish we didn't live in a world where that's such a mm -hmm. present reality for us like that we can people still do that today and they are literally doing it as we're talking right now in a world where that was the most visible form of power there was this other story connected to this mysterious <laughs> non-mathematical person named jesus that started something totally different and that grew in ways that the roman empire couldn't understand and could train all its violence on and still not squelch or stamp out mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we need to have that kind of model of change if we're going to re be really part of beneficial change in the world yeah 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 yeah. and i think be invited to when you think of uh that agricultural metaphor right of sowing the field plowing yes. the field planting the seed uh allowing uh i you just you plant Someone else, something else moves it from spring to summer to fall to right. winter. That's not me doing it. Uh, wow. that, that's, exactly. There's some water exactly. that, that and, and, but someone has to plant something. And we need the word slow to become in vogue. <laughs> oh, you know, like we need in a world where it's how fast yes. is your internet? How fast did you get there on your private jet? Slow is sexy. That's actually how things are and i think that's what yes. you're getting at when you're talking about this redemptive move of influence impact fast bright but not sustainable Influ right. influence we can get out of bed each day and sow yes. the seeds in the field for those such things yep so there were two sons of god in the first century of the common era the first century a.d and one was named augustus caesar and he had impact like he died in his fifties, I think, but, uh, after 30 odd years of being emperor and he had changed the face of the, the sort of known world, the Mediterranean, Mediterranean world. Like he, that's it, totally impact through a great deal of violence, right. the, the use of a lot of money, um, and all kinds of power of which we're with, which we're very familiar. 
and then and he was called by his subjects the the divine son the the, the son of god basically uh and then there was this other person who literally almost no one heard of in the roman empire <laughs> such that 2000 years later skeptics could say we're not even sure this guy even lived like mm. we're not can you really prove to me he existed like mm. we have no doubt augustus caesar existed there's this other person whose existence is tenuous enough that especially in the tw- earlier in the 20th century people are like ah eh, i don't think that's those texts are real and also attributed to with the phrase the divine son the son of god and his life apparent is very it's actually quite brief uh but incredibly consequential now augustus of caesar's world is still with us in certain ways but the world that the other son of god started started in motion has outlasted the roman empire by well i don't know depending on when you date the end of the roman Mm -hmm. empire but you know Mm -hmm. 1500 years Mm -hmm. and counting Mm -hmm. and is still growing and that like what do i want for my life i've i've been thinking about um generational horizons uh, of our lives. And I think there's kind of a three generation limit to almost every human being's work. Hmm. That is any, I I try to write books that'll be read for maybe 10 years. Um, That's, I I kind of aim for a 10 year horizon for my books. I feel like it would be presumptuous presumptuous of me to imagine it might last longer. But suppose I write a really good book. (laughs) Uh, I could imagine that being read by my, by my great my grandchildren or maybe even great grandchildren's generation but not further i mean how many books are still read a hundred plus years later a a countable number right uh that's not very likely my my work but three generations from now if it's a footnote it'll have been way more successful than i have any right to expect Mm. um also interestingly any damage i may do in the world uh, will last about three generations. Mm. Uh, it will have effects on my children and on my children's children in a certain epigenetic way, but it will, it, the, the, the impact of evil actually fades, mm. uh, over time. And God, you know, God speaks of this in, in Exodus. Uh, I'm the Lord, uh, and I visit the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, he says, which is a disturbing thing in some ways because it's like, gosh, why should the children have to bear the sins of the parents? But it is also just empirically true. So your work for good or bad, it'll it'll be gone. Like, I mean, even a podcast called The Good, True, and Beautiful, which sounds awfully eternal. They're not they're not Google. They will if there is a Google in a hundred years, they're Google. not Google, they're not Googling us. <laughs> right. Chances chances that there's a Google in three generations. Yeah. Like less than fifty percent, I would say. Yeah. Uh, like how many companies last more than three generations? But God also says, But to those who love me and keep my commandments, um, visiting blessing for a thousand generations. So I've been asking myself, how do I live a thousand generation life? Mm. (laughs) That cannot plausibly have anything to do with my work. Not that my work is not valuable. Mm -hmm. It's the way I serve God and neighbor today. But I need to be thinking about like, what's the shape of my life that somehow could be a blessing for a thousand generations? Mm. And I actually think there there are ways. Mm. And it, it it is in how I treat other persons. Yeah. That has a thousand generation horizon for what matters, even though my name will be forgotten, the, your name will be forgotten. But it could be that if I love and honor you to whatever extent I'm in proximity to you, that that could 
mysteriously to be sure yep. ca- carry on far beyond the horizon of anything we would ever do or do together yeah yeah perhaps we could plant some love perhaps we could plant some peace perhaps we could plant some patience perhaps yes. some kindness and you just never know yes what that may bloom into um yeah i'm with you on that i'm so with you on that i uh I just recorded the audiobook version of this book and um, my, my engineer, uh, we got into a really interesting conversation. His great grandfather was rescued on the side of the road in Northern Italy by nuns when his great grandfather was a baby. So he was left on the side of the road by some young mother, probably who, you know, had had an unexpected, pregnancy that she she couldn't care for the child so she just leaves the baby on the side of the road and you know this this guy my engineer three generations later (laughs) like he literally exists as the person he is because these these nuns somehow found this baby on the Mm. side of the road and Mm. and brought that baby baby up and that baby eventually made it to the united states and or or their child did i guess um and this is part of his family story you know and he told me this story and it's really interesting to think about where did that love come from that those nuns showed to that child. We know where the baby came from. Hmm. It came from the inevitable reality of human beings and human sexuality and all the ways that can go slight, slightly or not so slightly wrong in some ways. And, you know, we know why the baby was conceived, but why did the baby live? <laughs> the baby lived because of love. But, but then where did the nuns get that? Hmm. Like, why? Why hmm. would you pick up a baby Get involved in the life of this child that's not your biological kin, that can do nothing for you, and yet you raise that child to the point that they're a full adult and can have the courage to cross an ocean. You know, like, that's crazy. Where did that come from? And I would actually say that's a thousand generation story. No, not yet, because we haven't had a thousand. But I think the story of why those nuns did that literally goes back through the first century of the common era, back to Abraham and Sarah answering the call of God, like back to Genesis 12, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's how long you have to go back to really explain why someone would pick up a baby, not their own, and say, we've got to care for this child. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, and we've all tried to define love, right? It keeps going in the end. It always perseveres, right? Wow. Uh, it's patient. Yes. It's kind. It's not a banging yes. symbol. It's a ripple yes. that never ends. Yes. You know, it's yeah. a song that stirs in the souls of generations. I love that. Um, wow. So redemptive move. One more here, because I love this <laughs> one. As you can tell, I've got this like Enneagram four wing that I can't get out of in metaphor land. And so I'm, I, I'm my, like, Ashton, you're a poet, my, brother. <laughs> well, I don't know. My, my senses are, when you start hitting me with metaphors, I'm like, Andy and I, we're going to roll deep. Um, so I... Uh, Talk about taste being greater than force, right? So this is this is oh, kind of wow. a riff, this is a riff off of the influence and impact. Um, yeah. Yep. But uh, talk to me about yep. that about about yeah, yeah, yeah. having <laughs> leading a life, impacting generations. Uh, not imp- excuse me, not impacting generations. Providing <laughs> providing taste, offering offering something yeah, yeah. a different taste in the world. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is um, one of the kind of unfair advantages of being an author in some ways. I get to hear people say things and then use them in my books with attribution. So this is something I did not make up, but I heard from my friend Dave Murray 
Dave is not incidentally a guitar maker and, and uh, an instrument maker and carpenter of various kinds, but instruments are the most amazing things he makes. And he, uh, I heard him say once, um, most Christians think that we're called to be a force in the world. Force for good. She's a force for good. Oh, to be sure. A yeah. force for good. Yes. To yeah. have impact for good. Um, he says, but Jesus calls us to be a taste, mm. uh, a taste of the new wine, a taste of the coming kingdom. And, oh my gosh, that distinction between trying to be a force and just how exhausting it is to mm-hmm. try to be a force, mm-hmm. like all mm-hmm. the resources you have to marshal and the energy you have to like summon to somehow enforce upon the world, your vision of even of the good yep. versus, but Jesus calls us to be a taste and so, of course, one thinks about Jesus' first miracle, which is this very interesting thing where they run out of wine and then they taste the water that's become wine, but they don't know where it came from. This this miracle does not have impact, hmm. right? It it just appears in the cups all over the, I, I doubt it was a room, it was probably outdoors, all over the grounds of this wedding. This This wine is poured and you taste it and you're like, wait, that's better. <laughs> like what, what is, the, what's this new bottle? Like, where did this come from? And, and the servants know, and Jesus' disciples know, and of course, Jesus' mother knows, but the steward of the whole feast doesn't know. Mm-hmm. The bride and the groom apparently never find out. Mm-hmm. They just somehow this taste came into this one wedding. Like, oh, that, that tastes amazing. What is that? Well, it's a, it's this insertion into the world of this different possibility. Mm-hmm. And, and yet John interestingly said, says Jesus did his miracle there, the first of his miracles and revealed his glory. And we would think revealed his glory means like impact. Like suddenly he's, you know, more like what we imagine the transfiguration was like, like yeah. now everybody sees, but in fact, only a few even, and even they must be like, wait, 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 what just happened? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's not incidental that it's the people at the mar- the margins, the edges of the feast, the servants, the people who are anonymous uh, to the guests who just walk around pouring, you know, refill your glass. You don't even really look at them as they do it. And they've seen something that the guests don't see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, reorienting our imagination to is it enough for me to be a taste? Because in a way it was enough you know, I'm, I'm a serious Christian, as serious as I can manage to be. And it was enough for Jesus. Like he spent a very short amount of time, given all the problems of this world, Mm -hmm. uh, as an actual human being. Right. And, and yet it was enough to set in motion this alternative story that we, you and I in different ways, I'm sure have tasted and said, I I think that's the real wine. Yeah. So yeah, yeah no doubt. And you it's, can, it's and you so can be different. in, you can, yeah. And you can be in, you know, those different states that you're in when, mm. when, when life has lost its flavor, right. Wow. That everything may be up and to the right. Uh, success may be there and yet you're missing. There's something else. There's yeah. a, there's, there's a taste that's missing. It's, it's orthogonal to use a language my physicist wife uses. It's orthogonal to the worldly success stuff. So orthogonal means right angles to like in a totally going in a totally different direction and dimension from. So, you know, by, by all kinds of standards, you and I are 
it, it, it leave aside our any personal success we may have had or where we are on the up and to the right curve, like from the perspective of any human being, any other time in history, and most like probably six to seven billion people today, you and I are like we are the winners, right? <laughs> totally. Yes. Um, and yet that is just orthogonal. That is, it's not really the dimension of the real thing. And you can have all that uh, for good fortune. Mostly it's just good fortune. Your life can, in the book, I talk about being charmed versus being blessed. Like you can have a charmed life. We, You and I, I can just guess. I don't know your whole story and I know there's pain in it and all kinds of uh, hard stuff in it as there is in my life, but still charmed lives, <laughs> frankly. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and you can have all that and completely miss the blessing or you can ha have all that and realize it's not even on the map mm. of what matters most. Like yep. it, what matters most is it, it's hard because it, it is hard not to say it without cliche, but it, it is love. Like love is the thing. And the, the kingdom of God is the breaking into the world of a way of love into a world of force and, and a taste of love in a world of force. Um, and that's, let's go high-fiving through the microphone about. on that. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, so the life we're looking for, it's available. It, yes. Like that, there's, this, there's, there's the yes. joke. Like, are you in on the cosmic joke? It's actually yes. available. You may not be, Right, you may have some things right. in your life that have made it not available to you, but wow. it it's there. It's it there. Is there. Oh, that's so good. And that is you're getting very much to the heart of what I'm trying to do with the book because I'm not trying to say we have to fix this technology thing, whether it's our own habits with our devices or you know whether we regulate Facebook, Google, Apple, Netflix, whatever. Like, yes, we need to fix some of those things, but we don't have to wait to fix them. And they won't be fixed in our lifetimes. Like this technological story has a, a way to run before people, before it burns out or, or flames out or whatever happens. Um, but right now, and this is why I, I build the book around, on the one hand, talking very much about our current world. But then I tell this story of this group of six people around a table in Corinth who we glimpse in Romans 16, almost by accident, almost out of the corner of our eye, we, we see them. But I, I want us to stop and look at them and realize, like they lived in just as messed up an empire as we do, and just as lonely a world yep. as we live in, in many ways. Just as exploitative, more exploitative, hard to say, no less exploitative. Um, and they had, they had found the pearl of great price. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it cost them their, several of them we know are, are almost certain it cost them their lives. But even that was not too much a price to pay for having found the, the new wine, the great pearl, the treasure in the field. And it was there. It was there. Hmm. And that's true for us too. Like, and, and I feel like as I've become more aware of this stuff, um, I've become more intentional about tasting it hmm. and being a taste of it. And I feel so much more sure that it's real today than I did 10 years ago. Yep. Uh, and it's not because our world's gotten better or even because my habits with technology or something have gotten so much better, though I think I've made some key adjustments. Uh, but it's because I started saying, this is what I want. Hmm. Um, this is what I want in my life and for my family and for my friends and for the church, the community that continues this story. Yeah, so good. So good. Um, man, well, I, I am, I'm beyond excited to see uh, where this latest piece of work um, takes you in your journey. April 19th, that's the release date. Is that right? Yeah. 
So they say. So they say. <laughs> all things, yeah. Maybe on it. Maybe as long as the paper and the ink are there, it'll be there. Exactly. Um. Um. Well, man, I'm uh super grateful that we've had this chance to kind of uh, pass this stuff back and forth. Um, yes. And uh, I, I always ask our guests, especially our first time guests, can I ask you a couple more questions before we leave? Of course. Um. Sure. So I always ask everyone: do, is, is there any like daily ritual or routine that you have? consistently committed to that you have found uh has brought in more flavor more more sustainability uh more ways to experience your essence if you will yeah well there is for me it's a super small thing um but every morning i make my tea i i'm a tea drinker i i make my tea and then the first thing i do especially before I look at any screen or any glowing rectangle is I go outside. Hmm. I just, uh, when I'm home, I just step out the front door. Uh, when I'm traveling, unless I'm completely imprisoned in some high rise, but almost, I mean, I would say probably 362 out of the last 365 days. I, the first thing I do is go out and I stand out of doors in whatever the weather is, you know, hot and humid, cold, raining, (laughs) sleeting, um, windy still. And, uh, I started doing this about four or five years ago. It, I, it is embarrassing given how small it is. It is embarrassing how much it has changed my life. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So just step outside before you look at a screen and you'll feel like a creature. Which yeah. Is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 My Mary Oliver soul is really, really loving that. Um, totally. I, uh, what advice uh, would you give to your younger self? Mm, wow. Don't be afraid. Um, do not be afraid. I, I think I spent so much of my late teen years, 20s, just with so much anxiety about so many things that um, some of the bad things happened. Most of them didn't. Uh, but even when even when terrible things happened, uh, God was there. Jesus was present. So I, I would, I would tell young Andy, uh, do not be afraid. Hmm. Beautiful. I love it. Well, man, um, super grateful for you, your work, your energy in the world. Uh, hmm. you are, uh, you are one of those ripples. So thank you for that. Keep doing your thing. And uh, you have a place here at the Good, True, and Beautiful table anytime you want it. So just keep us on wow. speed dial, and uh, you're a trusted voice, um, and i um, grateful for what you do, man. So thanks so much. Wow. Thank you, Ashton. You Thank bet. You. you bet. Till next time. Uh-huh.